we're dealing with a, with a phase of teaching in the church which we're calling Back to Basics. And over the next two weeks, I'm, I'm going to be talking about our communal and, and congregational worship and praise, what we've just been doing. Um, with the intention of, of, of looking at the, the scriptural and biblical basis for what we're doing and why we do it. You know, sometimes we learn to do things just by copying what we've seen and just by being inspired by somebody that we've seen. We see someone playing tennis on the television and we go and buy a racket and we get on a court and we begin to hit a ball around. And you can get quite good doing that. But if you know the theory and the basis and the principles that govern the game, you can play it better. One of my greatest regrets is that when I was a young person, my parents offered me the opportunity to take music lessons. And I was too busy playing football and things like that and being down at the beach. And in subsequent years, I started learning to play the guitar and I did that by watching people and listening to them. And I got to play okay. Um, but it's limited for me. There are things I want to do that I can't do because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of acting instinctively. I, and for Tilly, he's a proper guitarist, and Joel, I play some of my chords upside down, and, and, and it, it works. It's okay, it works. But I could be doing it so much more efficiently if I knew why. And what we're going to be trying to do over the next couple of weeks is, is look at what we're doing when we come together here, and together we begin to worship and to, and to praise God, and why we do it. And there's an awful lot to talk about, and I really hope I've taken the priority that I should take. Um, some months ago, I spoke on intimacy with God, and, and that relates to where we're going now. So if you'd like to go and look at that podcast or listen to that podcast again, it might set a bit of a, ba a background. But just to, in, in, a, in a sentence or two, summarize what I was talking about then, talking about the fact that when we were created, when Adam and Eve were created and, and, and mankind was created, we were created in relationship with God, in innocence and in perfection in relationship with God. Adam and Eve did not have to learn how to relate to God. It was a natural thing like children relating to their parents. There was no formula, there was no procedure, they just loved their father and they responded to him. But then sin came into the world and created an increasing division between God and man. And as time goes by, if we, if we read the Bible through the Old Testament, we'll see that that division, as sin establishes itself in the world, it infects and damages more and more until mankind is not able to deal with or handle the presence of God. God has to be cautious in making himself known to man because his very presence can cause a reaction in our sinful beings that can destroy us. That's, that's scary. And dealing with God in the Old Testament had elements about it of being scary. We see the culmination of, of what's happening, or we see the evidence of it in when God begins to appear to the people of Israel in, in the wilderness, and they have to construct a tent so that God can meet with them and manifest his presence to them behind a screen, because otherwise his presence would damage them. When he first appears uh, on the mountain to speak to Moses where he gives him the Ten Commandments, he, he gives him instructions to keep the people back from the edge of the mountain. They had to put markers out there, and people had to stay away. And he says, warn the people, lest they try to break in. 
And he said if anybody goes near the base of the mountain and touches it, they had to be put to death. Whoa. That's where it got to. God created this tabernacle, and we're going to talk about it this morning. How many of you are doing the Bible course at the moment in life groups? Andrew spoke about it this week, and he spoke about that tabernacle, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more this morning. But it got to the point where we were unable to stand in God's presence. There had to be something protecting us. If we jump ahead to the, the New Testament, to Matthew 27, 50, 51, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, one of my favorite, one of the most exciting I want to jump up and down when I read this verse. It says, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and it's right at the end. And he's about to to give up his spirit. And it says, Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. And God walked out of the Holy of Holies. Because he didn't have to have a veil between us and him anymore. That veil has been torn, and God tore it from top to bottom. And he said, I don't need this anymore. Now, through relationship with Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus, those who accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ are safe in my presence. They're allowed to be there. We're told we can gaze on his face, unveiled. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about worship specifically. We were given access to be in a place of relationship with God that was unrestrained, to be able to respond to His manifest presence. His manifest presence. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He's all-present and He's always present, but we're not always aware of His presence because so much other stuff clutters the way. And there is a veil that we put across the front of God because of what we carry inside ourselves. You see, the fact that we've been given the right to be in the presence of God unrestrained and unfettered doesn't mean that we know how to do that. We live in these earth suits, these bodies that we have, that have grown up in, in the sin of this world, and we, we are created new in our spirit, but we have to renew our minds. We have to change the way that we deal with things. And that doesn't come instinctively. We don't just suddenly understand that I can put all these things aside and walk constantly. In. Guys, if there's somebody here who walks every moment of every day aware of the manifest presence of God so that it affects every word that you say and every decision that you take, then come and talk to me afterwards because I need to learn from you. Because we don't live that way. We live in a world in which we carry our preferences and our opinions and our experiences and our cares and our ambitions and our plans and those things crowd for our attention and they build a veil between us and God. And so... For us to really become people who become familiar with the intimacy of God with worship. Let me just take another moment on that. I use this now, I will use it often because it works for me. Worshiping God is being in a position where we're actually talking and responding to Him because we know He's there. We're no longer just talking about Him. We are talking to Him and loving Him and responding to Him. And the example I always use when I'm teaching on this, it works well today because my wife isn't here. She's fetching my son from the airport, and I'm very excited because I haven't seen him for six months. And I hope he's on the plane because his plane was cancelled in Washington, but that's another story. But Sandra's on the way to the airport in the car right now. She's not here. I can tell you about her. I can tell you about her. She's wonderful. I've been married to her for 33 years, and and I love her dearly. And I still can't understand why she chose me. And she's lovely, and she does so many things well. 
She's a great mother. She's a, she's a, she's a, she's a bright lady. She's a lovely musician. You know, I can tell you all these things about her. I can praise her. I can tell you guys, you lost out in not marrying my wife. And I can praise her. But that's different to her walking in the door and me going over and putting my arms around her and hugging her and say, I love you. That's intimacy and responding to her manifest presence. Right now she's in this world, but I'm not responding to her presence here with me at this time. And that's where we move from into a place of worship with God is when we get into that intimacy. Now, the problem is our humanity gets in our way. We're, inno- we're not like Adam and Eve, innocent in our minds. They didn't have all the stuff that I walk around with in my head. Because God had them innocent and, and perfect. They hadn't sinned. No one had sinned. Nothing cluttered there. And so it was easy for them, but we carry our distractions with us. How do we then bring ourselves into a position of making us change, whoopsie, making us change. I've waved my hands around quite a lot, forgive me, I've just popped my specs. Um, Thank you. (laughs) That's embarrassing. Um, I can still see you. How do we bring ourselves into position of change? Because I want to say this to you, in all the process that we're talking about here, in all the principles and values we're talking about here, we are not going to change God one iota. God is not a man that he should change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God that we have today. And who he is and the holiness of his presence hasn't changed. His desire to be intimate with us hasn't changed. So if we're not walking in that intimacy, it's not God that has to change, it's us that has to change. So how do we go about changing ourselves to bring ourselves into a place of responding to that presence of God and therefore being changed by that presence. You know, Andrew spoke in the DVD that most of us, or many of us watched on, on, on Wednesday or during the week, that in the Old Testament there's often a physical example of something that becomes spiritual through Jesus Christ. Things change because Jesus dies and fulfills. And there are precedents set in the Old Testament that we learn from in terms of how we respond spiritually to God. Because if we remember that God hasn't changed, but we have changed, our status has changed because of Jesus, then the way that we respond to him maybe changes, but the principles remain the same. And the values remain the same. And a good place for us to find precedent in the Bible is to look at the tabernacle which was built for Israel, for God to commune with them. God, when he gave the Ten Commandments to to, to Moses, God said to him, here are instructions. I want you to build what was essentially a tent temple. Later it was established permanently in Jerusalem when Solomon built the temple. And it was very ornate and it was made to precise precise instructions to, to, I believe, remind the people of the importance of it and, and the value of it. But in structure, it consisted of an outer court with a gate. And there was a place there for sacrifice. And as you moved in closer, there was a place for cleansing in the court. And then there was a tent inside that court, which was divided into two places. The holy place, which had a curtain across the front of it, and the holy of holies, which had a very beautiful veil in front of it. And in the holy place, there was an altar for incense. And inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, 
the reminder of what God was doing with them and the mercy seat where God would manifest his presence in the Holy of Holies. And here's the thing. People didn't just stroll into the Holy of Holies. There was a process whereby you moved into God's presence. In Psalm 100, it says this, Shout to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord God, it is he who made us, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Come to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. For the sake of time, let me move quickly. Israel would be going about their business. They would arrive in a place, they would put up their tents, they would establish their, their, their places for their, their cattle and so forth. Their minds would be full of the things of what they were doing. They would be having arguments with their neighbors and falling in love with, with their, their, their future wives and husbands and life would be going on. And although God was with them, their focus wouldn't be on God. But there were times when they would come to bring their worship to God, to, to, to respond to this presence of God. And they would come to the tabernacle and they would come first of all with sacrifices and offerings of thanksgiving. But before they did that, they would begin to pray and prepare themselves. They would clean themselves. They would wash themselves. When they came, sacrifices and offerings would be made. And then the priests who represented them, who were a nation of people who were, or not a nation, a family of people who were taken aside and from when they were little, taught to understand the presence of God and the holiness of God and the glory of God. They would go in further. They would cleanse themselves. They would dress themselves in, 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 in robes and they would go at certain times of day into the holy place to burn incense to represent the praises and the supplications and, and the prayers of God's people to go up and bless God with a sweet aroma. The Holy of Holies, the presence of God. Only once a year the high priest would go in. And before he went in, he would go through a rigorous process of preparation, of cleansing. And when he went in, he'd be wearing Robes that were significant of how God guided people and so forth. And interestingly, around the bottom of the robes would be little bells. And there'd be a long sash tied around him which hung out under the veil because they would listen to hear that he hadn't dropped dead in the presence of God. And the sash was to pull him out if he had. Such was the reverence that was taught to the people of Israel about going into that holy place where God is. And what it was, was a process of putting aside the distractions of their everyday life and the things that made demands on them. And as you moved, and as your representative, the priest, moved through from one court to the other into the holy place, there was an ongoing focusing of attention until when the priest stood in the holy place and began to burn the incense, they say that the, 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 the veil didn't go to the roof and the glory of God would shine out from the holy place so that the priest sometimes had to retreat because the presence of God and the people would respond waiting outside. They'd be watching in awe and expectation and responding to the presence of God. And it would change them profoundly. Now next week I'm going to focus more on worship and, and, and that profound effect of the presence of God. But they came in by preparing themselves. God didn't change. They did not summon God by doing certain things. 
It was not a process like you see in some pagan and heathen uh, practices where they go through certain rituals and then they demand that their God makes his appearance. It was a changing in the attitude and positioning of the people to make them ready to be in the presence of God. Because before Jesus died, handling the presence of God without being in the right position would destroy you. You think I'm exaggerating? Let me tell you a story. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his demand. So the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You did not come as a priest to the tabernacle from your busy day, with your mind full of all the things that you've done, and bringing all your stuff along with you, with your little tin thing, with your sandwiches and your, and your, your uh, yogurts and, and, and your, your milk drink and so forth in, and walk past the other priests and say, all right, I'm just going into Holy of Holies. You didn't do that. You positioned yourself to respond to the reality of who God was. Now, think about this. The same God is the God that we serve today. Ouch. Does that mean that if I respond in a disrespectful way to the presence of God, that fire will come down from heaven and strike me? Praise God, thank you, Jesus, no. Jesus hung on the cross and was punished for every act of disrespect, every act of irreverence, every act of, of, of just not doing what God wants. Jesus has carried the burden for that. You should all be jumping out of your seats now. Otherwise, we'd all be Kentucky Fried. We don't live in fear of being killed because we don't go into the presence of God with reverence and we don't. But God is still the same. Now let me say something to you. We need to go into the presence of, the God, in the, in, of God in the way that God wants us to. Not the way we want to. Think about this. If my wife, who I love dearly, and I, I believe she loves me too, if, if she came to me and said, Clive, I love you so much, and I value you so much, that I want to have a special day with you, and a special time with you, and I want to bless you with a special day and a special time. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to get into our gowns, and I'm going to put on my big fluffy slippers, and scrubble for my makeup, and we're going to go and sit down in the sitting room, and I've got a box set of Call for the Midwife. And we are going to watch this together to bless you. Guys, that's not a blessing for me. Okay? I love my wife. I love her whether her makeup's scrubbed off or not, and whether she's in her gown and fluffy slippers or not. And I will always enjoy spending time with her. But what I've just described is what she wants to do. That's how she wants to spend time with me. She's setting the parameters with her preferences and what she wants to do. She loves the show. I can only handle so many people screaming in one night. It just, it doesn't work for me. It frightens me. I was there at the birth of both of my children. It was in equal parts awe-inspiring and terrifying. And I've had enough. Don't want anymore. She wants to bless me with a special day. It involves bull tongue and rugby. 
in front of the television, not call the midwife. And we need to be cautious that we don't have an attitude in our hearts. Say, God, I want to spend time with you. And this is the way we're going to spend it because this is what I prefer. This is how I like to do it. This is how my tradition, how my value structure, how my experience, how my personality wants to do it. We need to be in a place where we do it the way that God wants. So how do we apply that in a practical way to what we're doing here? What's the lesson that we carry over from the tabernacle into what we're doing in this place? Well, guys, when we came in this morning, we came in from different places in our lives. Not just geographically, I know that. Some of us were blessed enough to come from Harper, and the rest of you, I don't know. But, but we came from different places geographically. But we also came from different places in terms of what we've experienced in the last 24 hours, what priorities we're facing, what challenges we have, how the journey here went in the car. Were the kids ready? Did you have to shout at them to get them in? What, what happened? And so we come in in loads of different places. And as we come in, those things, you might have been up all night praying. I'm sorry, you know, maybe, maybe you were praying all night and you walked in here full of the presence of God, ready to rock and roll. I wasn't. Okay, I was, I was ready for this and I was prayed up for this and then my son texted to say his flight's been cancelled in Washington and he might have to fly to Chicago and I'm a, an overprotective dad. So I spent the middle hours of the night praying that my son would find a, a plane to get him back home to us. But you might have walked in absolutely focused, but not everybody has. And yet if we want to be responding to God's presence, we need to be putting those things aside. And therefore... That physical process which is evidenced in the tabernacle can be a guide for us for a spiritual process that we go through when we come into this place. Responding to God is not something that I can just push a button and do if my mind is full of other stuff. But there is something I can do by decision whenever I want to, no matter what the circumstances are, I can praise God. Praise is talking about, boasting about, and telling about the goodness of God. And we are told in the Bible to do it all the time. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun, moon. Praise Him, you shining stars. Praise Him, your highest heavens and your waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He set the place. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all your ocean depths, you mountains. You... Praise the Lord. It doesn't say if you feel like it. It doesn't say when the circumstances are right. It doesn't say if you agree with it. We praise God because he's worthy of praise. And some people say, no, I can't praise this morning in church because I'm feeling a little bit you know, uh, angry with someone and would be a hypocrite to praise God when I'm feeling like No, it's not. Praise is about what God has done, not about what you've done. It's a decision. You can grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, praise God, because he's worthy of praise. You say, I'm being overdramatic. Well, what does the Bible say? Acts 16, 25 to 26, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. If you believe that Paul and Silas sat in jail with their backs shedding blood from being beaten in the middle of the prison, in the dankest place, with the prospect of being stoned the next day, and they suddenly said to one another at midnight, I'm feeling good. I feel good. Let's start worshipping God. Then I would say to you, living in La La Land. 
Paul and Silas said, God is worthy of praise. Whether we live or we die, whether we've been treated well or we've not been treated well, we will praise God. And they began to praise God. And when you praise God, you position yourself differently towards Him. As they began to remind themselves of the goodness of God, of the great things that He had done for Israel, of the great things that He had done in their lives, as they began to speak of the immeasurable power of Jesus Christ, they began to tear the veil away that was blocking them from the manifest presence of God. And the presence of God filled that jail and it blew the doors off. When we praise God, we change ourselves and we change the circumstances. We don't summon Him, but we position ourselves where we begin to acknowledge by faith who He is. And when in our faith we begin to praise Him, even though we can't see Him, and even though the circumstances aren't right, He changes us and He changes the circumstances. I'm in a hurry, so I won't read it, but King Jehoshaphat, huge army comes against them, they get the people together and they start praising they start reminding themselves of what God has done. Because they look at the, at the fight and they say, there's just no way we're going to do that in our own strength. So they start praising God. And in the midst of it, a young man gives them a battle plan. And the plan is put the choir in the front. The army's going to march out with the choir. I bet the choir loved that kid. I bet they loved him. They, they're all thinking, okay, we'll do the service here and then the guys are going to go in the front with the spears. No, they're in the front singing, praise you the Lord, his mercy endures forever. If you read the story, that destroyed the other army. They ran away. It took Israel three days to carry the loot back that they got from that army that ran away from the praises of God. So how does that... What happens here? We come in. We begin to praise. We begin to sing songs that remind us of the glory and the goodness of God. And by faith, we begin to respond to that. And we change ourselves to the point where we can begin to pull away that veil that we have placed there. And we begin to stand in the manifest presence of God. Praise is always demonstrative or audible. I can't stand like this in praise. Because praise is doing something to acknowledge and to tell about the goodness of God. Are you say that's your opinion? Well, let me take you to the Bible. Let me take you to... Uh, no, I don't want to speak to you, Siri. I want you to switch off. No. Sorry, my button on my, my phone lets me down at, the, at, at times like this. I'm having equipment failure today between my specs and my... Oh, I don't want Siri. just want you to switch off. There we go. Thank you. Let me take you to the seven words in Hebrew that translate to praise the most often in the Old Testament. The Old Testament wasn't written in English. Okay, if you thought of one, well, sorry if it's a disillusionment for you, but um, it was written in Hebrew. And, and it, it, it uses a language which doesn't have one word for some of the things that we only have one word for. Praise is expressed in a number of words in the Hebrew. And I'm just going to work through a small group of them and give you the translation, which you can find. I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. It doesn't even involve digging in books anymore. You can Google this, the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, and you can find what these words mean. Because you may have stood here and you saw people with their hands up in the air and you saw people dancing around little bits and you might have wondered why are these people doing this and something might have said to you, this is their tradition. This is their preference. This is the way that they choose. I grew up in a very conservative background. We thought people like us now were people who were emotionally immature and just needed to hype themselves up to speak to God. Okay? 
from our dignity. We were dignified. We were the chosen frozen. Um, this is what the Bible says. This is not my tradition, your tradition. This is what the Bible says. The word that is most commonly translated to praise in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word halal. Now, guys, in trying to explain this to you, I'm going to try and draw some references and examples from some of the greatest cathedrals of praise that we have in this country. Places like Old Trafford and the Cop at Liverpool and, and, and the Stadium of Light. Because you want to see some of these things in practice? Watch people responding with love to their football teams. Okay? Halal, this is what it means. It's a primary Hebrew root word for praise. Our word hallelujah comes from it. Halal Yahweh. Praise God. It means to be clear, to shine, to boast, to show, to rave, to be clamorously foolish. We come into church and we look at somebody who's clapping in praise and we say, he's a fanatic. And then we go and see a grown man, a 24-year-old millionaire, put a leather container of air into the back of a net and pull his t-shirt over his head and run around like an aeroplane. And we say, that's perfectly normal. <laughs> that's fine. It's football. It's football. Get a life. Lighten up a little bit. But if somebody moves anything in church, then they're a radical, happy, clappy, and they're an emotional wreck. Listen to what it says. It means to rave, to celebrate, to be clamorously foolish. If you've never heard this, I'm going to give you an even more shocking one right at the end, okay? Psalm 113, verses 1 to 3. Praise Halal, ye the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. They're using the word, rave about the Lord. Be clamorously foolish. With, you are so excited about his presence. David was raving in front of the ark when it was brought into Jerusalem so that his wife looked down at him and said, shame on you, you embarrassed me. And she was punished. Let me move on. Yada is a verb with a root meaning to extend the hand, to throw out the hand, Therefore, to worship with an extended hand, according to the lexicon, the opposite meaning is to bemoan the wringing of hands. Now, I haven't been often, but I, I, if you haven't access to tickets, then I'd like to go often, but I've been to Twickenham a couple of times, and one memorable time I went, I can't remember the date, but South Africa lost 53-3 to England. Will Greenwood ran through the back line as if somebody had built a four-lane highway through the middle. It was, it was, it was sad. Okay, And I walked into this place, and outside there were people selling Gurevors, and there were Zulu dancers, and I thought, as a South African rugby supporter, I'm going to be fine here. And then I walked in, and I sat down. And they sang in Korsi Sikulele, and I stood up, and I was the only dude for, I don't know how many thousand around me, singing in Korsi Sikulele. And then they sang God Save the Queen, and we were blown away. I was in the minority. So I thought I'd keep a low profile. I will behave myself here. We only got three points that day. But when we got those three points, I forgot that I was supposed to be... And I went, yeah! And I threw up my hands in praise. Because we'd scored three points. 
Let's raise our hands for God. Otherwise, we're radical, emotional wrecks because we're being too demonstrative. But that's not what the Bible says. It says to, to the extended hand, to throw out the hand, to worship with an extended hand, to give thanks sometimes. It's also it's a thanksgiving. And I was so thankful for those three points. It, it, it can be thanksgiving, it can be praise. The next one, the third most uh, commonly translated word is the word torda comes from the same principal word as the, as the root word for yada, is used more specifically. Torda means an extension of the hands in adoration, avowal, or acceptance, by way of application. Yeah? If you want to see this demonstrated, you can see it at football. It's often done like this, as people sing the immortal words of that great hymn. Ole, 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 ole. Or you can see it at a Justin Bieber concert, <laughs> where it's accompanied either by a cigarette lighter or a mobile phone with the light switched on, and they sway in adoration. Guys, we see these things all over the world, but we, we are so distraught about being... Let's move on. Shabak means, this is a big one, to shout. So annoying when people shout, isn't it? <laughs> Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. There's a time to be demonstrative and to really shout out. Barak means to kneel down, to physically put yourself on the ground as an act of praise to God. Yeah? Was it the Kenya in his suit, sliding across the grass on his knees when his team scored? putting himself down on the ground in an act of praise. Here's one which I think people need to know as well. The word zamar, it means this, to pluck the strings of an instrument, to sing, to praise a musical word which is largely involved with the joyful expressions of music with musical instruments. You know, when, when, when we up here leading worship and we get to a point and Joel cuts loose on the electric guitar and it just begins to climb as a... As a it's not Joel having some fun. And it's not to entertain the crowd. It's an act of worship. You can worship on your instrument. David used to go into the presence of Saul when Saul was oppressed by a demonic spirit. And David would go in and just play on his harp. And the presence of God would manifest in that place. And the demonic spirit would leave. And then there's the word tehillah. Derived from the word halal, it means the singing of halals, to sing, to law, to receive, to perceive, to involve music, especially singing hymns of the Spirit. All of these are words that are commonly used. I could give you, and you're welcome to go and Google them, reference after reference where these words are used where we put the word praise in. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Why, why is it so demonstrative and so fast? Is it God standing there and saying, I like to see you guys jumping around like a bunch of idiots because it makes me feel good? No. It's a way for us to take hold of those things that are our preferences, our priorities, and our things, and say, by focusing on and rejoicing and shouting about and dancing about and singing about the goodness of God, I begin to establish that in myself, and I begin to respond in faith, and I build a place for God to be enthroned in. 
and I respond. And what we find is as we begin to turn our eyes on Jesus and those things begin to, to fill our mind, we put things apart and suddenly we find ourselves responding to God's manifest presence. And then it can get very quiet sometimes. And that's a whole different thing which we're going to talk about next week. That's not something that you just switch on. Guys, I want to make it clear. It's so important, I believe. There is no formula. There is no formula for entering into a worshipful presence, into the glory of God. There are principles that we apply. There is no formula. We do not summon God from heaven to appear amongst us because we do certain things, because we sing certain songs. And God, sitting up in heaven, says, Oops, I'll have to go down to Forest Town because they're pressing the buttons. He's here right now. He's amongst us in all of his power and all of his glory and all of his love and all of his grace. How are we responding to him? Is he the center of what we're doing? Is everything that we are doing focusing ourselves on him? And sometimes we need to help ourselves when we come in to place ourselves in that position. You know, I come from a a pretty conservative background. I find it really hard to be demonstrative in praise, I'll be very honest with you. I find it really hard. And please don't feel a legalistic obligation placed on you now that the worshipers are going to be watching to see who's, who's doing what. It's got nothing to do with that. I once went on a workshop years ago with an with a American uh, um, pastor working in Zimbabwe, a lady called Bonnie Deschelles, and she taught on these things, and she taught by precedent and example. And she talked about one of these things, and said, right now, we're going to do it. Why aren't you doing it? It was very, <laughs> kind of freaked me out. Very challenging. Don't take that kind of spirit from what I'm saying this morning. You, you praise God as you want to. But you know, sometimes, challenge yourself. Challenge yourself. Why don't you want to do this? I'm not saying you won't have to do everything all the time. Okay, now I'm going to do a bit of this and I'm going to do a bit of that. That's not what the guys do when they come into the, 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 the game. They, they respond to what's going on and their excitement and their joy and their support makes it a spontaneous thing. But if it's never happening, why not? Is it because of my preferences? My, are there things, there's a song, an R&B song, take the shackles from my feet so I can dance. Sometimes I have to force myself because you don't really want to see me dance. Somebody asked me, we were in Holland, the guy, Herman, said to me, do you dance? I said, not in public. Um, <laughs> Because I'm the epitome of dad dancing. I've got rhythm, I just don't know what to do with it. But sometimes I have to force myself just to do a little shuffle, just because I want to say to myself, why are my feet rooted to the ground? Now I want to shock you a little bit. Because if you think all these things are challenging to us, I want to tell you what God does, because he loves you. In the book of Zephaniah, Chapter 3, in verse 17, it says this, The Lord, our God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And if you go and look at the Hebrew, you will see that that word rejoice over you with singing is the Hebrew word gil, or pronounced gulb, more effectively, and it means this, amongst other things, to spin around under the influence of violent emotion. God dances over us. 
We have this image of an old man with a long beard sitting on a big golden throne, looking incredibly dignified all the time, and he is holy, and he is mighty, and he is powerful. But he's a God who wants a personal relationship with mankind, and he rejoices over his children. He rejoices over every sinner that comes into the kingdom of God. God dances with joy over us. That's not my opinion. Go and read it. God rejoices. What I'm going to be trying to do next week is, is talk about how we can move from this into a time of, of intimacy with God and what happens in that time of intimacy. And then we'll try and talk about the practicalities of how it all fits together in a service and how we respond to God's presence. But I hope this has been helpful to you this morning because we don't serve a God who wants to ration our being with Him. What I want to share with you next week is what God actually desires is not just acts of worship. God desires a life of worship and a lifestyle of worship. What would that entail? What I spoke about in the beginning. Do you make every decision, every conversation, every act that you do in the course of the day something that you invite God to be part of? And are you aware of His presence in it? And does he involve himself and do you allow him to involve himself in all that you do? That's taking acts of worship into a lifestyle of worship where it affects all that we do. That's the ultimate goal. Not these little tasters that we have. You know, one day we're going to stand and walk and move through eternity in the presence of God. And like Adam and Eve, it will come naturally to us. But we're not there yet. But we have a God who is longing to be intimate with us. We don't have time to praise and worship in the church just to make ourselves feel good. In the presence of God, we are changed so that we are different people in His kingdom because of His presence. And He longs to have us in His presence so that we change to be more like Him, so that He can rejoice with us and be with us. When we have these times together supporting one another, it makes us familiar with that place. But a friend of mine used to lead a church which over the door of the church as you left, as you were walking out, it had a sign above the door that said you are now entering a place of worship. If we become familiar with the presence of God and we worship in places like this where we have assistance and people that are are helping us to, to move in that presence, that becomes more and more established in our life, and then we take it out. And then like Moses, our face shines, and the glory of God is evidenced in our lives because we have changed fundamentally, not just in what we're doing, but in who we are. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about.